Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have dealt with death throughout history. From embalming and epitaphs to mourning and morgues. We are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week, we are talking about the lost tomb of Alexander the Great. Now let's get on to the show. We are back with Alexander the Great, part two of our first ever, like, direct two-part episode um, on Alexander the Great. So last time we talked a lot about his life, a little anachronistically for this podcast, but this time we are talking all about tombs, legacies, shenanigans, very up our alley. I love shenanigans. So many shenanigans. <laughs> Also, I'm back. Hi, everyone. Hi, Christia. Welcome back. Yes. <laughs> so happy missed, to have you back. Missed much. I'm sad that I missed it. Well, I'm sad. sad that I missed it, and I'm excited to put my two cents in around the death of Alexander, which will be great. Onwards we go. Yes, it'll be great to have you back also because we are going to cover about 2,000 years of history in rapid succession and... As we know, I am not a great historian. My knowledge is specific and deep, not broad and accurate. And as a caveat, as with the last time, there are lifetimes of academia and research around Alexander the Great and around his lost tomb and everything that followed his death was part of his death. The fragments and resources available about his death. I'm just some person on the internet with access to books and newspapers. I may get names, dates, place names incorrect. So take this as you would as though you were listening to your slightly drunk friend at a house party ramble about their very specific interest in lost tombs. Um. <laughs> That's kind of our whole vibe here, though. It is. This is, a, this is a great talking to a friend at a party vibe uh, podcast. Just about death. So, as we know, Alexander did a lot to kind of deify himself throughout his life, but a lot of the deification and mythification that we know of now around Alexander actually happened after his death. And part of this is because he did have a number of generals and close companions vying for power who no longer had to worry about Alexander coming for their head should they slight him publicly. So everything about him, his achievements, his character, his background, his divine status or not, was totally up for grabs at this point in time. There is no lack of information about Alexander the Great, but there is an extensive amount of contamination in terms of bias, power-seeking, lying, and fabrication around Alexander specifically. So is part of why researching him is such a lifelong endeavors because everybody comes to different conclusions depending on who they're looking at and how they deem the veracity of that source and also because we're still looking for the sources that we think are there that are talked about it's tough going out there for alexander the great scholars still looking for evidence so with that said 
We're going to talk a little bit about the generals and companion cavalry immediately following the death of Alexander. Green describes them as mourning their king in blood. So immediately following Alexander's death in 323 BC, they called kind of an impromptu council of the Macedonians, which turned into like a big ad hoc like legislative meeting in which they did a preliminary divvying up of powers among all of the generals and the bodyguard. I don't have a complete list in front of me right now, but the main ones to know about is that Perdiccas became regent of Macedonia, and that Ptolemy I Soter, uh, as we'll probably refer to him going forward, because there's a lot of Ptolemies, um, <laughs> as was the problem last time, uh, took control of Egypt. Perdiccas was made regent because Roxana was still expecting at this time. So Alexander's last wife was about six months pregnant when he died, and it was unknown whether she would give birth to a male or a female baby. So in the meantime, they made Aridius, who is Alexander's older brother, who has a cognitive disability, into king in the meantime. Up until this point, he had not been considered in the running and therefore had been safe from royal purges. Uh, but spoiler alert, I lied when I said Aridius is safe throughout all of this. Oh no. And so he was made joint king with uh, Roxana's baby, who was a male heir when he was born, who was also named Alexander, Alexander IV. So they were made joint king, but Perdiccas was the acting regent who actually made all of the decisions and did all of the kingly shit, essentially. So Alexander was embalmed by an Egyptian embalmer six days after he died. He went unburied for 30 days while they divvied up power, notably. You mean they didn't just have an all-out free-for-all to see who was the strongest? <laughs> Unfortunately, the funeral games that some people say Alexander foretold came in the form of 40 years of war between the various powers that had been divvied up. One of which is very much of note. So... Hmm. Aridius was tasked with building the catafalque for Alexander's body to travel in. So a catafalque is decorative wooden framework supporting the coffin of a distinguished person during a funeral or while lying in state. So it's essentially the big fancy chariot in which the coffin will go to transport it from uh, Persia back to wherever it's going. And this becomes the first source of our shenanigans. Question. Yes. From Persia or from Egypt? From Persia. So, okay. yeah. Fair question to ask, seeing as we're going to spend a lot of time in Egypt. Um, but, but Alexander did die in Persia. He was set for his expanse into India, which his last plans were unanimously dropped by the generals and the bodyguards who were like, we want to go home. Enough is enough. It's reported that before he died, in the couple of days before he died, that he had requested that they take his body to Amon, or Amun, in Egypt. It's debated whether he said specifically to take him to Siwa, or if he actually said this at all. Because as we know, in the last couple of days, he had a really hard time speaking. He was near speechless um, for the last couple of days. So I don't think he was giving like detailed plans. I think it's possible that he said, take me to Amman, 
And that that was the extent of the death directives that he gave to all of these men who would then split his empire. There is a tradition among Macedonian rulers in which the successor is supposed to be responsible for burying their predecessor. It's part of what gives them authority in Macedonia. So it's unclear whether Perdiccas, acting as regent originally, was going to take him to Egypt and then change his mind, or if it was the plan all, of law, all along. But Perdiccas attempted to take Alexander back to Macedonia, um, to the Aegean where Philip II is buried. The catafalque that Aradius had made is huge and extremely decorative. It's four meters by six meters, reportedly. It's done up in gold and gem-encrusted shingles that protect it from the rain. It has, like, a complicated engineering system to keep it from cracking from unpaved roads. There's statues of Nike at every corner with arms outreached and two golden lions protecting the entrance to the catafalque. And then the coffin itself is made of hammered gold fitted to the body, packed with spices and herbs and stuff. It required just, like, a fuck-ton of mules to pull. It was not moving very fast. Does everybody know who slash what Nike was, aside from a friend? Goddess of victory. Goddess of victory, yes. Hell yeah. yeah. Worth worth pointing out. Yes, Nike, the shoe brand, pulls its name from the goddess Nike of victory. Yeah, so we've got this slow-moving catafalque who it's starting to make its way back towards Macedonia. Ptolemy had fought Perdiccas about this because... Well, for a number of reasons. There was also a prophecy that was delivered by Aristander of Telmasis that claimed that the city slash country that was home to Alexander's corpse would prosper and would never be conquered. So there was some like superstitious desires as well to have the body of Alexander the Great. But Ptolemy, from what we can tell, may have been doing it just out of loyalty to his friend. Because Ptolemy, Perdiccas, Alexander, Hephaestion had been friends since they were very young children. Ptolemy is rumored to have actually been Alexander's half-brother because his mother was a concubine of Philip II, even though he's not officially a bastard of Philip. So there's that potential there. But either way, Ptolemy convinced Aridius to essentially diverge from the path to Macedonia and to meet him in Syria, where Ptolemy be waiting with an army to take the catafalque into Memphis, which at that point was the government capital of Egypt, in order to be entombed in the tomb of Amon, like he had requested. This, of course, really pissed off Perdiccas, who gave chase. Because the catafalque was so cumbersome, Aridius and Ptolemy actually abandoned it partway through and just took the coffin with Alexander in it. Perdiccas did not realize this initially when he found... The catafalcon started to take it back. It took him a while to realize that he had been duped, and by then, it was too late to give chase. So Ptolemy did his shenanigans, stole Alexander the Great's body from right under Perdiccas's nose by manipulating the king. And he reportedly took it to Memphis and entombed it with quote-unquote Macedonian rites. We'll get back to how he was actually entombed in Memphis in a bit. Perdiccas responded to all of this chicanery, hijacking, by attempting to invade Egypt with the Grand Army of Macedonia. He tried twice. 
The first time failed because they tried to cross the Nile, and a good portion of his men were eaten by crocodiles. That sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of them trying to cross over into India and being like, those are elephants. Those are large armored elephants. What the fuck do we do with elephants? Um, Hannibal this... crossing the Alps. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's uh, the other option. The crossing of, uh, I guess this is a successful crossing of the river, but the crossing of the Rubicon. I guess it's, I'm just I'm just throwing out historical armies crossing rivers. That's what I have to contribute Hell? this episode. Hell yeah! It's Perdiccas' second attempt. Also, was not one of those because his soul, the Grand Army mutinied and ran him through with Macedonian uh, Sissas, which. You're unfamiliar with the Sissa? It's essentially the longest version of a stabbing stick. They tend to be about 10 feet long and require multiple people to operate them. Sorry, Sarissas, not Sissas. Sarissas. R.I.P. Perdiccas, you tried. (laughs) Yeah, so Perdiccas, unfortunately, time is cut short. Antipater takes over as regent of Macedonia. Antipater, of course, was part of Philip's old guard. He was regent while... Alexander was away. He was the advisor to Alexander when he was regent. And unfortunately, in the fallout, Aridius is killed. And can you guess who? Who in our story so far has been extremely jealous of those who take positions of power away from her? Any guesses? Olympias? Yeah. Yeah, she comes out and she she does in poor old Aridius in 317 BC. And then Cassander, who is the son of Antipater, poisons Roxana and Alexander IV, extinguishing Alexander's dynasty. Uh, and they are killed in 310. At, the, at that point, Alexander IV is about 13 years old. Jumping back over to Ptolemy, who is, for the first bit, is like, ah, oh, I'm, you know, reigning in the place of Philip Aridius and the, you know, Alexander's empire. And after about 16 years of that, he goes, you know what? No, ditch that. I'm Pharaoh now. And essentially cuts ties with the rest of the empire. Um, Among the first things that he did was he established the cult of Alexander in Memphis, um, elevating him to the like state appointed position of God and also doing what he could to kind of tie the line of Ptolemies to the reign of Alexander the King by having them deified under Alexander. I don't know a ton about theology of any kind, so I don't know exactly how that works, but I know that in Egypt it was pretty common for there to be a very close tie between pharaohs and the religions of the area. Uh, Refresh my memory. Was he considered... He was considered one... In a pantheon of gods, correct? Yes. So that he was, was the included... practice. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So he was essentially added to the Greco-Egyptian pantheon as a god. Mm-hmm. And was, yeah, was actively worshipped all over the place. The early Ptolemaic dynasty also has coins minted with the profile of Alexander on them, wearing an elephant scalp and the ram's horns of Amun-Ra. Mm-hmm. Which is... Right. It's an image that comes up a lot for, like, hundreds of years, especially in the coins that are circulated through Alexandria. Yeah, it's it's interesting just because one of my... The one of my 
once upon a time when I was looking at doing a master's degree in Greek and Roman studies, classical history, I was really interested in combining of religious ideas, Mm. especially through the Mediterranean and uh, even as far north as like Scotland and how all of these ideas kind of mesh together. Like you've got cults of Isis and cults of Alexander up like hundreds of years later, like across, you know, the Mediterranean and the ancient world. And it's just really interesting how, and it's just, it's just really interesting how these deifications of uh, political leaders shows up in the archaeological record through coins and through altars and just even through stories. And it's just, I just love it. It's one of my favorite things. And just seeing this giant kind of melting pot um, where you can still see the distinct parts that are Egyptian or Greek or Roman. And interestingly as well, at the time that Ptolemy took control of Egypt, it was following Nectanebo II. I think I'm, I don't know that I'm saying that right. I apologize. But he was essentially the last Egyptian pharaoh of Egypt, I think kind of forever. So he actually had a tomb built within the Temple of Serapis, also called the Seraphium of Saqqara, which is a famous like multi-chambered tomb of pharaohs and other figures in ancient Egypt. Saqqara is also one of the oldest pyramids in the world. Fun fact. Yes. Stone robbing is a huge problem from the ancient worlds. Oh god, yeah. I mean, if you go up to uh, northern Britain, like up along Hadrian's Wall and stuff, a lot of... You can see parts of Hadrian's Wall all around the countryside, and it's just been used to build uh, people's... uh, the walls around people's properties. Yeah. Hell, is... even even at Point Ellis House, it's believed that um, the brick pathway through the garden was built with uh, bricks from the chimneys from the house. So, <laughs> Wow. Waste not, want not, right? Exactly. So Memphis definitely had a, a time in which it was not quite as occupied, and a lot of the ancient buildings were lost. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So when they got there, Nectanebo had vacated the country. It's suspected that he died in Ethiopia while on exile and fleeing from external forces. So there was a whole sepulcher and sarcophagus and stuff prepared for him that he was not using. So just something to keep in mind that there is a massive uh, king's tomb that is unoccupied at the time that Ptolemy Soter comes into Memphis with Alexander's coffin. So it's unclear when exactly Alexander's body actually moved from Memphis to Alexandria, whether it was within a a couple of years, which is doubtful, all things considered, up to whether it was Ptolemy IV, Philippator, who actually moved him. As Philippator built the mausoleum called the Soma or the Sima. I'm just going to call it the Soma Mausoleum or the Soma for short. It was said to be a huge structure potentially based off of the mausoleum of Helicarnassus, which was supposedly one of the great wonders of the ancient world. That mausoleum slaps. (laughs) 
It's also apparently the, like, linguistic father of all future mausoleums. It was, like, the first one to be called a mausoleum. So, potentially a topic for a future episode. Uh, a little farther away from ancient world episodes. Uh, but it was also supposedly surrounded by a wall that encompassed about a half kilometer square, making this, like, almost campus around the Soma Mausoleum in which Alexander was kept. It was a very popular place for pilgrimages. It was potentially before Christ the most important sacred like remains in the known world for the Hellenistic period. It was a real popular vacation spot. Let's put it that way. So following the wars of the successors, there was relative calm for like 300-ish years. Uh, up until about 50 BC when Julius Caesar comes to Alexandria. I believe Egypt was the last part of the Greek Empire to be taken by the Roman Republic at this point. Andrew Michael Chug points out that Julius Caesar was on one side of a political schism in Rome about how to run things and that he was a little bit more on the dictator side than the Republic side and that Alexander was an incredibly powerful potent symbol for those political goals. As Chug puts it, as an exemplar of successful absolutist rule, he was a propagandist's dream from the perspective of Caesar's party. So when Caesar visited Alexandria, he went to visit Alexander's mausoleum. He came up to the mausoleum down like the main strait of Alexandria with a full like parade of pomp and flair and being like, the Romans are here to see Alexander. When was Caesar in Alexandria, or at least this particular instance? In 50 BC. Okay, so he wasn't emperor yet. He was not. So this was the same visit in which Julius Caesar met Cleopatra VII. Yeah, so after Cleopatra's death, Egypt did become part of the Roman Republic, which then became the Roman Empire. So among all of these visitors to visit the Soma to see Alexander's body... Uh, Nero also came to visit. He recalled and reissued all of the coins from the early Ptolemaic era, which lowered the price of silver. Don't know how, if he just printed more coins or used worse silver. But he continued with the motif of Alexander in the ram's horns, but this time as a personification of the city of Alexandria itself. So very much tying Alexander himself to the city as being kind of one in the same. When Emperor Septimus Severus, who reigned 193 to 211 AD, visited the city in 199-200, uh, he came there hellbent on a mission to stamp out all Egyptian magic and occultism, essentially destroying lots of papyrus and records to stamp all this thing. He seems a very type A person from the little I've read, but he was shocked by how easy it was to access Alexander's tomb. So he had it sealed off. And in the style of the ancient world, this was essentially moving a mountain in front of the door rather than just a simple lock. His son, his oldest son, the same way that Alexander had been deeply obsessed with Achilles and imagined himself as the reincarnation of Achilles, Caracalla, as he becomes known throughout history, develops a similar obsession and belief system about Alexander believing himself as a reincarnation and a spiritual successor. He unfortunately, in his emulation of Alexander, only takes on the aspects that one could attribute to a terrifying megalomania. 
He does not come off as being charismatic and brilliant and the center of an empire. So he goes, he visits the body of Alexander. It's said that he stood there for a minute, tried to adopt kind of the pose of Alexander's mummified body, convinced himself that they did in fact have similar features. He then disrobed of anything of worth that was on his body and left it in the tomb before resealing it again. One of the main things to note about Caracalla's visit to Alexander's body is that it is the last recorded definite sighting of Alexander's body in a particular location. It's the last time that we have a record of where exactly he actually is, like the physical remains. Unfortunately, Caracalla, shortly after that, seals up the tomb. He, you know, he builds an army of like 16,000 Macedonians outfitted with as historically accurate armor and weapons as he can get. And he does not take well to the Alexandrians' habit of kind of ribbing the Roman overlords. Just, you know, jokes, not being super impressed. He took it super personally and essentially just fucking massacred the city of Alexandria, terrorized its civilians. I believe his initial attack was he called all of the, like, fighting age men into one of the city squares for something. And he's, you know, he's going around chatting as his army slowly encircles the whole square. He steps out of the circle of men, gives a prearranged signal, and the soldiers just start hacking through these civilians in Alexandria. But he does a lot of damage. He terrorizes the shit out of Alexandria. However, he does kind of get an end befitting that kind of action. Uh, he gets very paranoid about, you know, someone's probably going to try and come and kill him, seeing as he's made the streets run red with blood. And he asks a friend in Rome to consult an oracle for him to suss out any plots against him. She reports one. He gets a missive back about a centurion officer who may be planning to kill him. Unfortunately, the centurion officer uh, named was the one delivering missives that day. So time was a ticking, whether there was a real plot or not, there was now. And shortly after that, on a, like a desert expedition, Caracalla was suffering from diarrhea. And while he was in private relieving himself, he literally got caught pants down shitting himself and was murdered by the centurion officer on the side of the road. And that was the end of Caracalla. A dignified way to go. I don't even know. I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> right? I'm like, hmm, hmm. Anyways, so after this period of time, shortly after that, the Roman Empire enters a, a state of instability for a long time. Alexandria had three huge sort of upheavals that led to a lot of conflict within the city and warfare inside the city, starting in 260 and going to probably the 350s, 360s or so. We get this slightly hyperbolic description of the city, but I think it's pretty telling from Eusebius. It would be easier for one to go, not only beyond the limits of the province, but even from the east to the west than from Alexandria to Alexandria itself. For the very heart of the city is more intricate and impassable than great and trackless desert, which Israel traversed for two generations. And our smooth and waveless harbor have become like the sea, divided and walled up, through which Israel drove, and in whose highway the Egyptians were overwhelmed. For often, from the slaughters there committed, they appear like the Red Sea. Just turning the harbor red. 
At about this time as well, there was an outbreak of the bubonic plague in Alexandria that also killed about a third of the population. And in this time, it's unclear whether the Soma Mausoleum actually survived the upheaval or not, but if it didn't, then it is likely that it was actually wiped out by a natural disaster in the year 365 AD, when there was a massive earthquake followed by a giant tsunami that just kind of washed a lot of structures off the board. <laughs> just getting decimated in every, from every angle. Absolutely. And the, the calamity is referenced in, in newer texts as being like a comparison point for smaller earthquakes and calamities throughout the Mediterranean. There's other theories about what happened to the Soma Mausoleum and where exactly it was, because it's unclear where exactly in ancient Alexandria it sat. Um, but the most likely theory posited seems to be that it was wiped out by this natural disaster. Here's where things start to diverge quite dramatically, but also don't diverge at all. There's some evidence that Alexander's sarcophagus and or coffin was actually exhumed from below the soma where it may have been protected by the size of the mausoleum on top of it and or the ceiling, like the seal that had been put around it by Caracalla and his father. So there's some evidence that it was actually exhumed out of there in the 380s or so because there's one very dubious reference to seeing the body of Alexander in Alexandria in 390. But it's worth noting that there was a lot of important Alexanders at this point in time in and around Alexandria. So it's unclear whether or not the writer was actually talking about Alexander of Macedon or a different Alexander. In 391, Rome went full anti-paganism, started tearing down temples. We're like, no more of this shit. It's just Christ from now on. This is also the point at which Alexander's body totally disappears from the record. And the body of St. Mark appears on the record. St. Mark the Evangelist is credited with having started the church in Alexandria in the first century AD, when Christianity was not super popular. But we'll, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. So the late Roman Empire's rule over Egypt ends and the Arab conquest comes in in the 600s, takes over, churches get torn down and replaced with mosques, the same way that temples were torn down and replaced with churches. Bada bing, bada boom. You change empires, you change architecture. In the 9th century, there's a couple of references to the mosque of Dulcarnine. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. I'm sorry. It's also translated as the two-horned lord and is said to be the guise of Alexander that appears in the Quran, and that the Muslim rulers of Egypt were a lot more tolerant of Alexander as a kind of deific figure than Christians were. And so there's a couple of mentions of kind of modest temple mosque that is referenced both as the mosque of Dulcarnine, as well as later by the tomb of the prophet and King Eskander, which is also a name given to Alexander throughout time. Homeboy's a, homeboy's a god now. He's like, he's been dead for a long time at this point. About half a millennium goes by before it's mentioned again, this time by travelers noticing a modest tomb within a house in the 1500s, which the locals describe as being the tomb of Alexander the Great. It's noticed again in the 1800s as being within the courtyard of the Atreen Mosque in Alexandria, which is supposed to be in kind of the center-ish area of where they think ancient Alexandria was. However, these European travels are not allowed access to the ground on religious grounds because it is a mosque. And then 
We cut to Napoleon Bonaparte coming to Egypt. And we're just flying through history here. He came with a huge team of scholars and scientists, the same way that Alexander had brought scientists and scholars on his conquests and really mapped some stuff out. Napoleon really reignited a lot of Egyptomania in France specifically, but I don't know if this is the same Egypt mania that gripped I, Britain at the time. It was. I actually just did an entire video about that about two months ago. And it's a lot of the uh, the reason that we have Egyptology as we know it today kind of started with Napoleon as he not only brought soldiers with him when he conquered Egypt, but also scholars and geogra geographers and other academics who took a renewed interest in ancient Egypt that hadn't really been around for a long time. Fun fact. Yeah, they did like a full survey of the country as well. <laughs> Ripped out a whole bunch of uh, monuments and uh, antiquities along the way, including the Rosetta Stone. Yeah, I was about to say, the Rosetta Stone was located during this, like, expedition. It was then taken from the French by the British, but... Mm -hmm. Among the things that among the things that Napoleon's men found was in this modest temple, in the courtyard of the Atreen Mosque, was a massive sarcophagus. It was about seven tons, made of green granite, and totally covered in hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphs had kind of fallen out of use in, like, the 4th century, so no one could really read these. Yeah. So they find this absolutely gargantuan sarcophagus in here, and they've been told by locals and stuff. They're like, yeah, Alexander's in there. They crack this puppy open, and it is empty. Which actually poses an important question. So after they decipher the Rosetta Stone and are able to read this thing a little bit, they realize that this is actually the sarcophagus that was built for Nectanebo II, who, if you remember, was supposed to be entombed in Memphis. Hmm. But this sarcophagus, which weighs seven tons, is found in Alexandria, and it's empty. So it begs the question, why is it there? What made it worth moving? And what was in it? If we think back to when... Ptolemy first brought Alexander to Memphis, there happened to be an empty king's tomb there, and he had a king in need of a tomb. So it's been postulated that Alexander was actually entombed in Nectanebo's sarcophagus during the years that he was in Memphis, because outside of the Temple of Serapis, there is a like semicircle of statues depicting Greek sages and poets such as Homer and Plato, which is why people are like, did we put Alexander here? It seems weird that these would be outside this temple and this tomb of the last Egyptian pharaoh, right? So it kind of lends to this idea that Alexander was in the sarcophagus and when they moved, the thing that made it worth moving this ginormous sarcophagus was the fact that it contained Alexander. How exactly they got it out from underneath a collapsed mausoleum? I don't know, believed that Alexander was moved in Nectanebo's sarcophagus and that it was potentially exhumed from underneath the collapsed Soma after 365. So assuming that that is correct, where the fuck is the body then? And so if we think back to the fact that the Church of St. Mark suddenly had the remains of St. Mark is at about the same time that Alexander's body disappeared from the record. St. Mark the Evangelist was supposedly... Some records say he was burnt to death, or that he, his body was burned, and others claim that he was saved by God, sending a storm to put out the flames so that he could be buried properly. Convenient mix-up, potentially, if 
Chug's theory is in any way correct. What's also worth noting is that prior to 391, because St. Mark was a first century figure, there were mentions of him being buried at the monastery of St. Mark. The East Gate in Alexandria is associated with St. Mark because I believe that's where he died or something like that. The church is on one side and the monastery is directly on the other side. So Chug's theory goes that when Rome was like, no more paganism, we're destroying pagan artifacts, someone, whether it was Alexandrians or whether it was early Christians, were like, we probably shouldn't let them have Alexander's bodies. The founder of the city, he's a deified person. We gotta hide this motherfucker somewhere. And so they were like, Mm, conveniently, we found the remains of St. Mark the Evangelist and just claimed Alexander's remains as this other person who was also either burnt or mummified in the same manner as Alexander the Great. Also, I don't know how distinguishable mummies are when they're just wrapped in linen up to 500 years after they've died. Uh, (laughs) Probably, it would probably be identifiable by anything with the body more than the body itself. Yeah. uh, Grave goods, y'all. Grave goods. They're important. Identification beyond the grave. Yeah, because like we know that the that the catafalque and the sarcophagus that Aridius had arranged survived for at least two hundred and forty years. The body is is kind of the main thing that's really missing, as well as the actual tomb. People are still looking for the soma, but. Chunk's theory goes that they swapped Alexander in for St. Mark to preserve him from Christian purges, and that... Do either of you know much about the Church of St. Mark? I know nothing. I've never heard of it before today. Great. Neither had I. I also learned that the most famous thing that ever happened to the Church of St. Mark is that St. Mark's remains were stolen by Venetian merchants in 828. Which, if Chug's theory is correct, were actually Alexander the Great's remains. (laughs) Hmm. They did a little swaparooski where they swapped out a different saint's body and took the St. Mark's remains to the Basilica of St. Mark in Venice. And the main piece of physical evidence that Chug uses to support his theory is that in the ancient foundations of the Basilica, one of the stones... Again, stone robbing was very common. Take from one era, use it to build the new. Is that one of the stones has a sculpted round shield with the starburst pattern on it that was the symbol of Alexander's reign and campaign. And that it very closely resembles Macedonian styles of shields as well. And that that potentially supports the idea that the body came from the tomb of Alexander. I don't know how exactly he's making that leap. So So that's Chug's theory. Is the body still there then? Like... Yes. Yeah. St. Mark's remains as we understand them to be, are still in the Basilica of St. Mark in Venice. They were removed from the lower catacombs due to flooding, and so now they're, like, in inside the Basilica. They're just in there. So if that is him, I mean, good for Alexander, I guess, because then he's still being praised as divine 2,000 years later. Interesting. He is the god he said he was. Yeah. I just think it's funny that it's like, maybe they did a body swap to protect him, and then the most famous thing that ever happened to this church was that that body got stolen. Hilarious. By just a couple of merchants. And supposedly, the body, when they were trying to smuggle it out of Alexandria, it smelled so strongly of, like, spices that they were like, this is gonna give us away. Since then... Um, The Egyptian government has recognized officially over 140 archaeological attempts to find specifically the tomb of Alexander the Great. Folks have tried looking at the Siwa Oasis, which of course is where 
Alexander first received news of his potential divine parenthood from the Oracle of Amun, but they were the permits were suspended due to a lack of evidence. The best or second best candidate for the likely location seems to be the Alabaster Tomb in Santa Terra, which is part of the Latin cemeteries about... 600 meters northeast of ancient Alexandria's crossroads. Hyper-specific, but I guess when you're looking for a tomb and it's been 2,000 years and things are sinking, it's the best you can get. But the Alabaster Tomb was, as it's so-called, was just discovered in 1907 by Evaristo Breccia, and it's it's suspected to be the entrance to the antechambers of the whole tomb. It's made of this, like, rose alabaster, it's beautifully veined, and it bears both similarities and styles to Macedonian burials, which I believe are called tumulus tombs, where they're buried, like, in a hillside. Or a hillside's mm-hmm. built on top. I didn't dig into it too much. I know, bad research, don't sue me. But also bore some resemblance to like Ptolemaic era architecture. So they've been studying it further since 2002. There's been some hints that there are ground disturbances six to ten meters under the ground, but we don't know anything more yet about what may or may not be underneath the alabaster tomb. Uh, there was a massive Alexander era tomb unearthed in. Amphipolis in Macedonia, Greece in 2014. It's generally thought that it was built for Alexander, but not used to due to the body snatching by Ptolemy I. But the excavation team seems more inclined to believe that it was actually a memorial for Hephaestion, really sparing no expense on memorial stuff for his boy. And the most recent major find related to the Lost Tomb of Alexander that I could find was in 2019, an archaeologist named Calliope Limnios Papacosta found actual uh, foundations of ancient Alexandria in Shalalot Gardens, which is part of a large public park in Alexandria. It's the first time that any archaeologist has actually hit foundations of the ancient cities, 35 feet down, um, because it's been... Alexandria has been sinking, as things do. Um, And there's also been floods, shifting ground, tsunamis, earthquakes, all sorts of stuff. A lot of stuff happens to the land in 2000 years. She's been working at this same dig site for over 20 years. As of 2019, she'd been there for 21 years. And they also found a marble statue of Alexander the Great that is mostly intact. So they believe that what they found is part of the old royal quarter of ancient Alexandria, which is also, some people speculate, where the Soma was located. So it's a massive find. She's hopeful that they're going to find more. It feels like the tomb is always super close, but also so far away. (laughs) And in 2021, an Egyptian official named Mohammed Omran, who is the director of Siwa Oasis's tourism department, claimed that they had found evidence of Alexander's tomb in Siwa, but it has not been substantiated or further elaborated on since. So I'm a little dubious, just because he's part of the tourism department. I was just about to say, that's something that a tourism sector would be all over. (laughs) Yeah. The fact that it's not coming from like an archaeologist or a historian and they're just like, yeah, there was like a temple here at some point. Had the two, you know, the two ram horns. And I'm like, even I can tell you that that was a thing for a moon who did definitely have a temple there because that's where his oracle was. I'm not an archaeologist or a historian though. So we'll see how that develops. But as it stands, that is the state of the lost tomb of Alexander the Great. It is so close, so far, and still lost. (laughs) 
And for all we know, it might forever be lost, you know? It was kind of fun to dream about finding these things. It's like uh, Nefertiti, her tomb has been under tons of conjecture forever. But, you know, people move and change. And archaeology in its current state has only been around for, you know, well, proper archaeology. I say, <laughs> up on my pedestal, has only really been around for, you know, the last 50 years or so. So Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say, I don't think we'll ever know, at least not in our lifetimes, I don't think where Alexander is, or if it's actually Alexander, or which potential body he is or is not. Yeah. Right? So much changes over time that it's it's difficult to tell, and it's, I hope for the sake of the people that are, like, dedicating their lives to it, that, you know, it shows up somewhere, but... yeah. Lots of conjecture. 2,000 years is a long time for someone to be both dead and important, which goes to show <laughs> body. your body is important. What happens to it is important. It's also good to have a death plan so people aren't hijacking your corpse. I suspect he may have been hijacked regardless of if he had a death plan. That's yeah, true. Yeah, because even if you have a death plan, that doesn't mean that, you know, the people around you are going to follow that death plan. True. Or even if they do, that your body won't be stolen and sold to medical schools, as we learned in our body snatching episode. Exactly. Yeah. So have a death plan and try not to get turned into a god. That's the not so quick and dirty on Alexander's lost tomb. Honestly, I, I kind of think that the tsunami might have done him in. I would like to know in my lifetime if they ever find it or if they're like, there's, we found enough proof that we won't find him that we're giving up. I don't think anybody, like, I don't think people are going to give up. I don't think so either. Even if there's concrete proof that he, you know, was swept away in the tsunami, you know, there's always going to be people who have other theories that they want yeah. to explore. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is too, and like we talked about this in the first episode, but the rejection of the idea that Alexander was done by malaria because of the kind of figure he was versus the reality that he was a human man who was in an area full of mosquitoes where there were at least four known strands of malaria is unpalatable narratively. And so there's always going to be, yeah, like the, the complete mythicization of Alexander will continue forever. I don't think there's any point where we're going to be like, well, you know, the rats might have got him. Time to never talk about him again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And hopefully after this two-part, you guys don't have to listen to me yell about it quite as much anymore. <laughs> Only time will tell. Only time will tell. Next week, there's going to be, like, some breaking discovery. And you're going to have to come back and provide an update. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like soon I'm going to have to do a reprisal on the Death in Space episode because they keep taking civilians into space. And I'm like, do they have Do they have plans for what happens if they die? I think there was a plan, especially with, like, William Shatner. <laughs> because I, I dude's old. Dying to know and also to do, like, here's a mini update on dying in space. There's a plan now. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's still, I think, one of my favorite topics where I feel like I learned, like, I knew absolutely nothing about the topic going into it, and I feel like I learned a lot, and I still think about things that I learned in that episode today. There's a ringing endorsement, folks. If you haven't listened to the Death in Space episode, you can go listen to me yell about different things over there. Episode two. So thank you all for listening. Uh, feel free to check out our Patreon, where I may or may not shunt a D&D version of Alexander the Great, because... Paladins of Conquest are a thing. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Come back next time and uh, stay well. Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, 
on Instagram at mortals underscore podcast and on our website, mortalspodcast.com. Show your support, access bonus content, and help us keep ads out of your ears by joining our community at patreon.com slash mortalspodcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there. Pan-Hellenist from Pella Hella Pissed.